welcome to How To Medieval, the how-to where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. My name is Ari. And I'm Matt. And today we're going to talk about labels. Sort of kind of a, a vague definition conversation. Mainly how words that we use both in the historical context and out here on the reenactor side, the, the meta side, how these words we use can change over time or how they have changed so that we can make sure that we're all effectively talking about the same thing at the same time when we try to have these conversations. Yeah, and there's a couple of different levels that this follows because there's words and terms that we use in the reenactment field that have changed over time. But that's also something that naturally happens with the progression of language anyways. It's something called a semantic change where words that mean one thing during one period of time change to mean something else and it has to go along with it's because societies change their word usage um you know looking up there's a whole bunch of technical jargon that goes along with this uh, and this is sort of me my other geeky side of this because I, I was an english major in college so we talked a lot about semantic shift in some of the uh, sort of language classes that i took um and these changes happen. So, so to basically read this, and this is from the um, uh, from a website. Uh, we'll link it. Um, I, I don't even know exactly what the uh, what the website what it's associated with, but it's um, uh, it has a good, very concise sort of definition of it. I like so the alteration of meaning, meaning why words change, occurs because words are constantly used. And what is intended by speakers is not exactly the same each time. So basically, if a, a group of people is using a word with one intention that differs from another intention, and more people start using that word, the, the meaning of the word changes. Uh, it's like, think of the word cool, right? We all say it nowadays. Say, hey, that's cool, man. It's a cool kit. Oh, cool armor, cool sword. Well, at one point in time, the word cool meant a cold temperature. It was, that's all it meant. And if you use the word cool to mean neat, then people will give you a funny look. They wouldn't know what you're talking about. But enough people started using the word cool to mean, oh, that's really neat. And it caught on and it changed the meaning of the word. Of course, like with everything we do, even in the reenacting and interpretation part of it, and what Ari always likes to say, context is king. It alliterates, which is important. <laughs> alliterates. Um, context is king. So it's like if somebody asks you what the what, what the temperature feels outside, you say it's off, kind of cool. They know that you're not saying, oh, it's kind of neat. The problem is when we're looking, when we're doing reenacting and we're reading things and looking at things, is a lot of times we don't have the original context. So we need to piece together what the original meaning of the word may be. And a lot of times, there are a lot of terms out there. Uh, we mentioned one in the last um, episode we, we taped. I can't remember the word off the top of my head. I have to look it up again quick what we said. But we, we don't know what it is. We, the meaning of the word has been completely lost, and we don't know what it means. So we have to sort of try to reverse engineer and figure, it, figure out what it is or just not use that term anymore. Right. 
And we actually find that there are situations in in the modern day, I would say, like us talking today right now in 2022, that there are words we use that don't mean what they used to. And we ourselves have are completely ignorant of what they originally meant. And for a lot of people, don't even realize that there was at one time a different meaning to these words in the first place. And so when you think about, like, you were talking about the, the easy example, like, cool, right? And how it, it retains both of its meanings now. You know, that one is, is a great example, but when you also think about something like dapper, like, today you'll hear the term dapper. It's not used all the time, right? But if I were to say that word out loud, most people would understand what you're talking about. You're talking about somebody who's, like, well-dressed, you know, they've got a, a good sense of style, they, they aren't slovenly in their appearance, and they usually are talking about, like, a male figure. So you think of, like, you know, George Clooney in his heyday, with, you know, being well-dressed and attractive and clean-cut, and that's what most people would see in their mind's eye. And the average person has no idea that when the word started, like the, the term dapper all originally meant someone who was like heavyset. It was like slang for someone who was chubby or fat. And I think the, not, I think the go ahead. terminology, I think the true terminology is stout. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the idea of being bigger, like a bigger gentleman. Now, continues to refer to gentlemen now, but it has almost a flip meaning. Like, it means the exact opposite. You know, you think about, well, not the exact opposite, but if you think about, it's talking about a man's appearance, but it's talking about what would we consider a positive trait to his appearance, whereas, you know, realistically, the term dapper originally was not a positive description of someone's appearance. Whether or not being heavier or heavyset or stout is a good or a bad thing is is a different conversation. But you know, taking it for what it is, it was not meant as a compliment, and now it is. But we have, unless we do the research for into almost every word we use, there's not a lot of ways for someone to know that there has been that, as you said, semantic shift in the language. And you know, when you e extrapolate that problem hundreds and hundreds of years ago, when we're talking about the changes of the words that we use in our research, it, it creates even more problems in understanding what it is we're trying to talk about and referencing the correct thing. So that is an important point to keep in mind that not only do words change their meaning, but a lot of times there's no evidence unless we are actively studying the etymology of the word itself that there was ever a change to begin with except for the fact that we just know that words tend to shift their meaning over time as a natural course of their usage. And it's mostly because of a game of telephone, as you were saying in that definition. It's because every time someone uses a word, they may mean something slightly different. And you have this accumulation of small nuance shifts in meaning that eventually, you know, there's no hard line, but at some point the word has just taken on a new life and a new meaning and it's simply because we play this huge population game of telephone over generation to generation. Another thing to remember for a lot of these terms that we run across, they 
they didn't seem to be as hard set in terminology of items as we seem to be today. A, a lot of times they may have noted noted something with another term that was just sort of ah eh, close enough. It's like we want we want things to be labeled and different for our ease of sort of itemizing or, or putting them into categories. So it's like, ask a reenactor what a jupon is, and you're going to get five different answers. It's the same thing when looking at lists of, uh, it's like hauberk, haubergen, male shirt. It, it's, you'll, get, you'll get inventories that are listed sometimes. We talked about this a little bit in the last episode, too. Get some inventories that are listed sometimes that it will say, oh, they had 12 hauberks, they had five hauberjuns, and they had five male shirts. Well, it's like, well, it very well could have been that they had the same thing, except, of course, they took the time to separate them apart. So we need to look at what they, what a difference in them. Like, technically, they are all male shirts. So what makes the male shirt different than a hauberk or a hauberjun? Because those are technically male shirts. So it's trying to tease out that information can be really, really difficult, especially without the context of it. So it's like, why would why would they specifically say those are different? What I find ironic is that the exact type of painful specificity we want out of our historical records and historical usages of words is isn't something that we adhere to in our day-to-day -day lives because we like the flexibility of being able to use language with a little bit of a uh, wiggle room you know it's a little a little bit of loosey-goosey usage creativity of our ability to describe things we yeah you know, we used the car analogy in the last of the episode about uh, inventories and and using receipts and things the word car like we as a modern day society would not accept the rigidity of every time there's a new type of car to refer to it only as its make and model and not use vague catch-all terms because we talk about vehicles in mass without specifying which one's which but if we were to be archivists from the millennia ahead of us wanting to know specifically what kinds of cars we were talking about, we would be like throttling ourselves, asking us to be more specific about which cars are in that parking lot so we can have a better, we could have a better cross-section of what types of models and types were available so that we can better reenact the diversity of, of cars available in the, in the 2020s. But we don't, we don't write that down when we're talking about, I saw a bunch of cars in the parking lot and we just use these general terms or I say, I have my car in the parking lot. You know, we go back to talking about accounts of knights and we want to know better what a knight was using. The knight would say, yeah, and I brought a couple horses. Well, like we want to know how many of them were pack horses, how many of them were riding horses, how many of them were war horses, what were the breeds they were, what were their pedigrees? We want all this information because it helps us do a better reenactment, but no one talks that way. And most people, except in very specific situations such as purchasing, ordering, you know, business, don't usually act that specific because most people around them understand what they have or can look like I say if I write down the yeah, I brought 
four horses. I don't have to say which ones. My ostler looks at them every day as he brushes them, you know? He knows what's out there because the notation isn't what teaches him the information, it's the experience. So we see this problem when we talk about words and what they are, like the word sword. Yeah. How many hours of, of podcast video and, and gallons of ink are spilled on trying to suss out what someone means by sword from era to era because no one says, oh, I have to abandon the word longsword now that we have bastard swords. No, they just say, yeah, I got my sword because to their generation, that type of sword was the only sword that was applicable and worth, worthy of talking about. So, I, I love when they start writing about in sort of these inventories and stuff, you have swords and then you have war swords. What what's the other sword used for? <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, we talk about you know think about you have your long arms versus side arms. We use these terms. You know, what's one sword versus the other? You know, you think about it in modern day. That makes a little more sense. You say if you say to someone today who's been in the military or been in law enforcement or just likes guns, you say, all right, you know, your long arm and your side arm. They know exactly what the application of both of those are without needing to know whether or not your long arm, what type of rifle it is, or what caliber handgun you have for your sidearm. We just sort of know how they fall into place. The answer to that question, unfortunately, is probably really intuitive to the people that were writing War Sword versus Sword Sword. Well, exactly. So there is, there is the talk about that. And it does kind of make sense. There's a terminology, uh, and, and Chaucer used it when he was talking about his uh, yeoman uh, in A Knight's Tale, the Knight's Yeoman, and calling him a forester. But he specifically noted that he wore, he, he had with him a mighty bow. So we know that the, the mighty bow probably referred to it being a military long bow, which put him as a, a soldier and an archer, not just a bow or a hunting bow, because hunting bows tended to be, as we know, a little less poundage than a war bow so it's, it's that that higher poundage that makes it a mighty bow and classifies him as a, as a soldier archer not just a hunter archer or something like that so there are it, it's so much terminology can be very cryptic in trying to, to to piece it out and you do need to to sort of know the reasoning why they would use such terms like that um did anybody during the you know the 1400s refer to their war bow as a mighty bow? No, probably not. They probably called it their bow or their or or their war bow if there was somebody who had a hunting bow and a war bow. Chaucer, of course, using a little more flowery language for the effect. So it's you sort of have to use a little common sense when when looking at a lot a lot of these terms and trying to figure out what they could have. Ben. It's, like, it's like that term we talked about in the last episode, the, the disarms called hasgate. We have no idea what a hasgate is. I, I can't find any information of what a hasgate gusarm would have been or looked like. But we do have an idea of what a gusarm looked like. So it was probably something fairly similar to that. If we're doing a reenacting and doing a uh, presentation, should we refer to it as a hasgate? Probably not, because we don't we don't know if what we're using actually looks like it or not. And that's where the real trouble comes in. 
is when we're not 100% sure we know what the terminology is talking about. And that can be interesting to try to suss out some of that stuff, but it can also get you in a little bit of sticky situations if you start saying that you know exactly what something looked like without being 100% sure. Well, I find it dangerous to say I know exactly anything. And I, not to the point of almost nihilistic ignorance of I, what can we really know, but to say, especially when you're coming off of something that isn't an extant object, to state that I can definitively tell you what XYZ object looked like or what this entry meant without any doubt is it's not honest research. That's a good way to think of it, not being that intellectual honesty. Yeah, you know, it's it's like thinking about the oak shot criteria of swords. You know, looking at a sword, we now can look at a sword, or, or some people can. I, I can't. I, I know very little. Uh, I feel very unconfident in my skills being able to tell you exactly what type of uh, typology a sword is by looking at it. But, you know, we look at something on a tomb and we're like, oh, he's got a uh, oak shot 15A. So we know that that fits in that during that time period. Well, of course, back then, they didn't have the typology. It was just a sword. It was a sword that fit the, the current style, or it was a sword that was outdated in style, or it was a brand new style of sword. They didn't have these different typologies and wheel and, and pommel typologies and crossguard typologies and all that stuff. It was just a sword, or and they called it either, you know, a sword of war, a tournament sword bastard sword whatever they had their own terminology for it but it was more based on use and size as opposed to the fiddly little bits of well it had this type of pommel and this type of cross guard and this type of blade and things like that so they didn't really keep track of stuff like that that much so to circle back on, on that sort of intellectual honesty Ari was talking about. I, we, we have to be honest with ourselves when looking at this stuff and trying to fit everything under these labels and typologies and things like that, saying, you know, they probably didn't didn't really do that. It's I guess Jupon, the word Jupon is probably the greatest word in reenacting to talk about what it because even within reenacting, and it, it's still a term that is used in French. I think it's French today, but it means something completely different than what it meant then. I mean, yeah. it's it's a completely different type. It's, now it's it's like a, a Dupont is a skirt, basically. Like, like, think like petticoats. So not only is it completely different today, but it now refers to a form of garment that, you know, like in the 19th, 18th century, like we haven't worn petticoats regularly as a society for a century. And that's effectively what Jupon means today. And what's, what's really hilarious about that is, like, we, as reenactors, we don't call a petticoat a jupon, even though certain people during that time period of reenacting probably would have called, may have called it a jupon. 
and people today call it a jubon. But to us, the jubon is a completely different clothing. And we actually have a hard time really defining what a jupon meant in the medieval sense itself. Mm-hmm. So Merriam-Webster defined a jupon as a tight-fitting garment like a, like a shirt, often padded and quilted and worn under medieval armor. Most reenactors would say, oh, you're talking about gambeson. And that's not a jupon at all. Well, as time went forward, it says also a late medieval jacket similar to a surcoat. Other definitions talk about this as, let's see here, bringing up Google, waiting for Google to load. <laughs> Taping is slowing down the. So that's. Most, most go off of the um, Merriam Webster definition. But it's like well, a, a, so Wiktionary has it as a sleeveless jacket worn over armor. A, um, where else we have here? Uh, I've seen people say, oh, here's a jupon uh, that says a garment worn by men in the 14th and early part of the 15th century. A, there's one for a long sleeve padded jacket worn over armor. Um, a heraldic jacket similar to a surcoat. So it's like, while they sort of all agree for the medieval time that it was some sort of jacket, it it changed in its meaning. It went from, even in the time period that we portray, it went from something worn under the armor, possibly, to something worn over the armor that could have either been, had been heraldry on it, or just sort of a plain padded defense. And as we know from how we've seen variation in artwork and in things like uh, Effigy and, and other resources, it's possible that those conflicting definitions arose because different people contemporaneously wore similar garments different ways. You know, especially as we see transitions from armor being worn or, or padding being worn under versus over versus as an ornament, and then you have things like breastplates that are either exposed or covered, and then you go back to things that are like coat of plates. It, it all gets so con- muddy that it's also likely that the word meant both things simultaneously sometimes, because words do have multiple meanings. Going right back to the beginning of this episode, the word cool still retains two very different meanings, and they can be used in the same sentence to achieve entirely different effects at the same time. And that's what makes it uh, kind of chaotic to deal with the way things are phrased, which is why I, I think that going to the dictionary sometimes is almost, it almost makes life harder than it needs to be because the dictionary wasn't written by reenactors. You know, people who are studying history don't write the Webster Dictionary. The people who want to make sure that kids can write book reports in the f- fifth grade write dictionaries effectively. And then we as adults use them to have, you know, very low-grade philosophical arguments. 
instead <laughs> instead of trying to move beyond the the purpose of a dictionary. If and... any of your listeners, if any of your listeners write dictionaries for a living, your jobs are very important. Ari's Ari's not trying to offend you. I I think that it is very incredibly important because otherwise, without dictionaries, how would fifth graders write their book reports? But let's talk about the sword. Next, we're going to attack the sword. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, you're right though. Most, most most people who write dictionaries for a living, you're not writing for reenactors to be able to look up and be like, "Well, what did they mean by Jupon in the late 13th century?" You're writing for the most, usually the the most socially ac accepted use of a word, and then well, dictionaries different meaning onto it. Well, I mean, to be a little less less. Uh... I guess, dismissive, which was obviously not my intention. But dictionaries, they have new, constantly have revisions and additions because the purpose of a dictionary is to give a snapshot of what the meaning of the language at that time is. It's a reflection of how people are using the words in the moment that dictionary was made. So with the exception of specific historical or like Middle English or etymological dictionaries that have other purposes, you know, your Merriam-Webster's dictionary is simply a snapshot of what does the English language mean today? Because it's not going to mean the same thing to additions from now because of all these changes and shifts and the addition of, of new words as slang becomes vocabulary and other words become archaic and unused. And there's only, you know, there's millions of words if you want to look at every time we have assigned value to a assemblage of sounds. There's millions of English words, but it's not like we all use them or understand them in the same way anymore. And you have to remember that during the time frame that we're looking at portraying, so it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to actually write an all-encompassing dictionary that encapsulates word usage and meaning of this time frame. Because language during the time frame and i'm talking not just what ari and i portray but what what all of us listeners included this whole gamut of what we portray in the medieval reenactment realm language was very tumultuous <laughs> during this time I mean, there was no standardized spelling yet there wasn't as we sort of touched on before there's, there wasn't any really standardized usage of what to call certain it's like, like Ari said, writing, writing something, somebody could be writing something down and he could call something a jupon that somebody else might call a paltok, which we will not get into. <laughs> or which somebody else might call a gambeson, which somebody else might call a martial surcoat or something like that. So all of these things, and they could all be talking about the exact same thing, like, like Ari said, a, a, it's trying to figure out if there is a difference, which can be really difficult. And that's why you need the context of what's being used. I mean, if somebody's talking about, if, if you're reading an, uh, a 19th century account and somebody's talking about a jupon, they're probably not talking about a medieval military garment. They're most likely talking about petticoats. At the same time, though, if somebody, if you're reading something from, you know, a 15th century account, and they said he put on a jupon, 
probably not putting on a petticoat, although now I really want to see a bunch of guys in armor come on the field with petticoats on all over the shop. <laughs> that sounds like a... Uh, we, we Some things we just keep to ourselves. Just saying, like... <laughs> That's like I, I can see that's like gonna be that's gonna be some days of nights late night everybody's had too much mead uh, and the Vikings are throwing on the jupons. That sounds like it's time for bed when shenanigans like that are are being bandied about. I just need to go to sleep. I don't have time to get to to have pictures I can never erase. Float around the world. <laughs> Remember, folks. Pictures on the internet never really go away. That's right. You know, they say if you want something to stick, you write it in stone. Nah. Mm. Cement can crumble. If you want it to last forever, put it on the internet. <laughs> so now you're talking about you were talking about a modern event, you know, days of nights. It actually I think the other half of this conversation that I think is important to point out is that the words we use to represent not just historical items and concepts, but our actual hobby and the and how we define the community itself changes over time and that's something that's important to know especially because as a new reenactor or somebody new to living history if you interact with somebody who's been in the game for 20 30 years it's possible that they will be describing things differently than how you might have encountered it when you tried to give a break into the hobby you know we see a lot of this in the reason we have to consistently redefine what we mean by living history versus reenactment versus LARP, uh, things like that, because what we consider to be, well, let's take the, the LARP, for example. There was a time when if it wasn't fantasy-based, it wasn't considered LARP. But as we try and differentiate emerging concepts like po the popularization of cosplay and separate that out from historical reenactment and where does you know you start to see look at one point there was never anyone really who mistook a living history event where they were reenacting a specific battle and someone who was doing what was very much like you know werewolf but with D, &D type clothes on those never really bounced into each other much but as living history folk put more and more story into some of the events that they were doing to enhance the immersion and then as some splinter groups of truly fantasy elements started to do more historical based storytelling and and role-playing and structure those lines kind of blurred and we had to be much more specific about what we meant because is is the preordainment of the story in a reenactment where you you know we already know who's going to win and lose change whether or not it's LARP versus the randomness of your interacting with the story because just like we know from anyone who plays D&D that it's possible to, to be in a sandbox game versus a game that's quite literally on the rails and you may not know what the ending is ahead of time but the DM certainly does or how you play the game affects the outcome and sometimes you don't know that going in to one of these things so there's you know, as they as these groups start to to interact in such a way that they create a Venn diagram of confusion, we have to then firm up or redefine the definitions we use to more accurately reflect 
what our particular slice of the hobby pie is. To sort of uh, bring it down from that really high overarching view uh, and talk about how terminology within systems, either reenactment systems, gaming systems, things like that can change. A, a really good example of that is something that's happened within the SCA and, and even in the past 10 years. So even maybe even less than that. When I, when I first joined the SCA uh, years and years ago, everything was an oh crap at the end of it. So basically the person who, who was in charge of running an event was the autocrat. Or there's like then there was a joke so like the feastocrat was the person who was in charge of the of making the feast, things like that. Now, the SCA has sort of moved away from that. Okay, some of the the old timers still use that terminology all the time. They're still calling somebody the autocrat or something like that. But as a, as a whole, they've started using terms like so. Somebody in charge of running an event is now the event steward. So they've gotten rid of that fairly modern, you know, cratic, the ocrat, uh, bureaucrat, basically, and, and tried to create a more fitting terminology for these things. You have like the event steward, you have the um, accessibility porter, things like that. And and that's that's like a, a terminology that has specifically changed within that game system that you still run into some of the old old timers, the, the like lifelongers been there since day one, who are like, well, you know, gotta go talk. I'm gonna autocrat an event. And people are like, you're gonna the new members are like, you're gonna what? Mm -hmm. And we can expect things like that to change over time. Who's to say that in 20 years the term steward doesn't fall out of favor and then we have things like event coordinators or some word that hasn't even risen to the top of our lexicon in such a way that it, we'd be able to anticipate the change. And I wonder sometimes whether or not changes in descriptions like this specific example are ways of, of people trying to define generations in a larger group. So there, you know, the, the idea that there's conflict between the young and the old generation in any in, in any organization is it's not like that's I'm, I'm going to surprise anybody that, that that conflict can occur the way that we used to do it versus people feeling like you know why are you holding me to a different standard than you were when you were you know at my place in whatever the journey is and for this example we're talking about going through and being a, a member of uh, the SCA and its hierarchy and, and rank structure and such so Sometimes these shifts, I, I don't know if there was what the, if there could be one defining reason to say that there's like, okay, well, we can point to this one, one reason that we changed from autocrat to event stewards. That would be painfully and inaccurately simplistic, but I think a large element of why some of these things change is when you see people wanting to kind of, as a group, maybe even subconsciously differentiate how they do things now versus how it was done before without needing to officially confront those who are still actively in the hobby with whom you may have a new philosophy on doing things. And we see this, and we definitely can see this as a way to, you know, we're going to, we're talking about label changes, but if you see changes in labels like this that happen kind of in a domino effect, 
you can also get some insight as to where the personality of the organization might be headed and if the if the social ship has kind of started to the bow has moved a bit uh, in its course i think one of the primary reasons for label changes for a lot of these things whether it's organizational positional title changes whether it's terminology changes for things being used it's a idea of better knowledge of we've learned something more so we're going to enact it moving forward it's for the example i gave with, with the autocrat event steward we people sort of learned as a whole that the autocrat title wasn't really a very historical title it's not really a title but job description i guess you could say so they decided as a whole to try to move towards a something that has a more historical basis in it. Uh, because the term autocrat itself didn't really show up until in, in writings until like the 1800s, like the late 1700s, early, early 1800s. Um, you know, the earliest form in English was, was autocrator, which was from 1759. So people looked at that and said, okay, so that's not really a medieval term. What term can we use now that is aligns more with what we're trying to put forward? And I think that's what happens with a lot of different terminologies when they change is we, we learn that what we were doing may not have been as historically accurate as we thought. So we try to adopt new terminologies to fit what we're trying to do because it moves us. It makes us feel like it's moving us further in that direction of being more historically accurate. That's interesting. And also, I think it's kind of unique to us here, the idea of, continually shedding the 18th, 19th century Victorian lens that has for so long obscured all of our research and the ideas that we had and informed so many mis uh, misconceptions that even people who were honestly studying the history ended up developing about the Middle Ages. That's, I just find that a very charming, and by charming, I guess bemusing parallel here that that the very term we would use to describe someone who was running an event is itself tainted by those dirty victorians <laughs> dirty dirty victorians <laughs> yes and they're high colors of deceit high colors covered just coal dust everywhere <sighs> victorian damn you dickens no oh, sorry what <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you're uh your literary major snuck through there for a second. But it's true, though. It's true that we, we are constantly sort of trying to claw our way out of, to be flowery, that, that pit of enlightenment. You know, the Victorians thought that they were so smart that they knew, they knew so much. And they just made up so much stuff. Yeah, they're such a bunch of liars. They were, they were. And, and they did it for... To make themselves feel more important, 
than they actually were. I mean, there were some very smart men and women of that time. Don't get me wrong. Very smart people from that time. But as a whole, so many of them did so much stuff because they were trying to bring themselves attention or prestige or, oh, look at us. We're so enlightened. We're so much better than what came before us. It's, it's like even academia and academic circles, terminology that, that the Victorians sort of coined, we're starting to get away from. It's like we, we're, we're pulling away from referring to that time period after the fall of the Roman Empire as the Dark Ages because we know now that it wasn't the dark ages there was so much happening during that time we are starting to pull away from the term you know anglo-saxon and referring it to the early medieval uh, england or, or something I, there, there's a new term for it. i forget what it is but they're trying to they're trying to pull away from that anglo-saxon because there was so much more going on than just the angles and the saxons and right calling it that one thing it removed the attention of everything else that was going on during that time um it's we're starting to pull away from lumping things together like calling the whole time span the viking era when there's really other smaller slices that happened in between that and breaking it down and knowing more is getting to to distill all that information even better so we really have more information about what was going on. I, 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 the internet has helped a lot with that just because of the, the dissemination of, of information. That's made it harder to sort of be able to figure out what is real information and what's false information, but still information is getting out there and trickling out. And, it's, and the internet in a way has started to put cracks in the walls of academia where we can actually mm -hmm. sort of get this information that you used to only be able to get either if you went to the institution or if you were paying to have access to their paywall yeah being able to i don't i don't support necessarily the willful disregard for paywalls i mean people who who do stuff need to be compensated for the things that they do but the fact that leaked information exists, regardless of whether or not we should have access to it, or it should have been leaked in the first place, has made a huge, you know, like you said, huge strides towards the, I guess you'd call it the democratization of these fields, where people who, almost like in that Victorian concept, where I have this information, I give this information to you, and you have to trust it because I am the professor. And you kind of chip away at that a bit where we see the community of non-historians being able to have a legitimate place in the development of historical interpretation that are then verified, you know, by the academics. So it, it, we're not necessarily have a place at the table, so to speak, but our expertise, even if it's non-traditional, is still able to come into play, which is kind of cool. Well, a lot of ways, not even just leaked information, too, from some of these places, but the, the actual authors and researchers themselves have the platform to put the information out on their own instead of having to go through their academic um, you know, university or something like that. They, they can put it out there on their own. That's true. And, and they do, that means that they can actually get their work out to more people because then they don't have to be stuck behind whatever 
draconian rules their institution has put on the the work that they produce and and just having that access is then eye-opening to be able to look into so many things and then and, and like the digit the digitization of so many documents that are now i'm sitting in my home in union maine i can look at a inventory list from 1415 that's been scanned from the university of oxford to put on the internet so it's when i wouldn't be able to do that without getting on a plane and flying to oxford and banging on the door begging them to let me in to look at this ancient piece of paper it's that's true yeah so how do we what's the takeaway how how do we use the information to make sure that we're using the current terminology. And then we actually, we actually know what the terminology is and we're, we're using it correctly. Well, the, the jaded hot take is don't trust words because they don't mean anything. We make it up as we go along. <laughs> but uh, I just picture Ari, he's like, he's like sitting in his, he's just like sitting in his room reading a book, puts down the book and he goes, words lie. Yeah, I mean, words are sim are simply they're simply the the reflection of the social constructs opinion on particular vowel sounds. It's they're really they have no intrinsic meaning. And without you know, really keep in mind the it's just to have a healthy a healthy skepticism. I feel like that seems to be the subtext of a lot of things when it comes to approaching this any subject matter but understand that that words don't have an intrinsic meaning and what they used to mean doesn't effectively refer to what they will always mean and so when we're trying to come and talk about subjects we have to be willing to have not just a parade of dictionary definitions but a conversation about meanings and intentions And that's what I really mean by that, is that we just don't, we just can't rely on, well, this word, this term meant something to me once, so it has to mean that way now. Uh, that's when we get into loggerheads about people arguing over definitions, and then, then people are quoting the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and then you know, no one ever really gets anywhere, because they've stopped communicating, then they've just started to create ideologies around words which is not going to benefit anybody in anything. I think to break down what Ari's saying is that we, in order to make sure that we're using these terms correctly, we need to have a conversation within the community and come to a consensus on what the terms are actually talking about. Like, like Jupon. I believe it's talking about that heraldic or even not even heraldic sometimes, but that that lightly padded overgarment of armor, not a petticoat. And if somebody else means something different, the the point is not to have an argument over whether or not Japan means what you think it means. What is? Why did you start having this conversation in the first place? Are you trying to talk about a, a specific garment and how it affects your and relates to your impression? Well, as soon as we understand what garment we're trying to refer, we can just use that vocabulary for the purpose of that conversation. And then once we have actually talked about that, you know, the structure, the, the where, where it fits in the timeline, how it fits into a status of an impression, then maybe we can have a, a nice little sidebar about 
why I thought Japan meant this and why you think it means that. And then we could talk about research and maybe we just shared some sources. And now both of us are more knowledgeable than we were before instead of just burnt out from trying to, to force our meaning of something onto somebody else. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can just ascribe new definitions to everything willy-nilly. We do have to accept that people have a general idea of what certain words mean. But when we're trying to pull words from hundreds of years ago and force them into playing, we're taking words from another language, Middle English, different language, you know, or Medieval French, a completely different language, and force it into our modern conversations and make it mean something in 21st century English, you know, we, we have to have some respect for the fact that that's not going to be perfect and a flawless process. And we're not even getting to things like regional differences. I uh, just think about modern day U.S. It's like, what's pop you, Ari? It's the bubbly stuff filled with death sugar. Yeah, that's soda. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I called it soda when I lived in California, and I, I find myself calling it pop now because I've lived here in the Midwest for so long. Uh, but you talk to somebody from Georgia, and everything that's bubbly and fizzy, regardless of how clear it is, is a Coke. So and it's sort of the same thing. It's like, like jupon, you know, in France, a jupon may have been any slightly padded overgarment that they wore over armor. In England, it may have specifically meant the sleeveless heraldic kind. In you know, some somewhere else, it could have been something completely different. So it's like we we have to take into account that it may have been the same term, like soda, or or the same item even, and it had different names of the same term used for a bunch of different things so I, I think like you agree with you having those conversations about and boiling it down to what are we really trying to talk about are we, are we using it to further our impressions and want to make sure that we're having the right items for our impressions or are we just trying to you know blow hot air at each other talking about the meaning of words i mean because i was an english major and i i i could i could Blow a lot of hot air about the what words. <laughs> it's like a philosophy major could probably do the same thing back at me, and we'd probably never actually really actually say anything, but it would sound really, really good. That's right. I mean, you just described, I think, a lot of collegiate debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where everyone says a whole lot, and then in the end, didn't really mean anything. But I mean, that's again, like I said before, words themselves are tools to convey meaning. They don't themselves have meaning. So accept that language will change and use that to our advantage. Watch how trends in words affect the thing that you're doing or the object you're talking about. And it can also add greater context to what you're talking about. So I think as flexibility is key, like be, be willing to accept that you might have a conversation with someone who thinks the word means a little different than you do. But if you can still have a conversation about the same subjects and get some value from it, what have you lost? Because to me, I've gained, I've gained the value of that conversation, and I've lost nothing because I can still leave the conversation thinking it means only sleeveless garments, even if I had a conversation temporarily where I used it to refer to quilted garments just to get the information I wanted or the, the positive interaction I needed from somebody I was talking to. Yeah, yeah. Well, and if uh, if you like listening to a couple of guys 
talk about stuff and never actually say anything. <laughs> Subscribe. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, if, if words also mean nothing to you, use stars instead. Oh, if words, if words, if, if you also, if you agree with Ari, and words have no meaning, use stars. Communicate only in stars. Five of them. Send us an email. <laughs> using nothing but stars. I is what we're getting to. We, we, we could have a long discussion about the change of language. And uh, I, I was reading a news article. My wife and I were talking about reading a news article about how emojis and how the, the generational gaps, like um, emojis may not mean what you think they mean to the younger generation. And I'm just like, I'm, it's just the smiley face. And they're like, yeah, that, that doesn't actually mean what you think it means. Like, oh, no. Right. That's the worst. I don't know. That, I, that frustrates me because I remember, you know, learning to communicate by text on AIM and MSN Messenger. And like when you had to hit seven four times to get an S, like I remember the, the beginning, the burgeoning text based communications and like emojis were such a useful tool for helping with the fact that you lose context over text and to then have people turn around and say, oh, well, we can't use those emojis anymore because they don't, they don't mean the right thing anymore. Well, they're still conveying meaning, like grow up and learn the new meaning, and then you can continue to translate your text with some context as to what you're trying to say in absence of your body language. That's, it's like, you know, a grin, you know, people can grin and they can do it out of joy or they can do it and leer, and it'll have two different meanings as to why they're smiling at you. You get those context cues from being part of a social society that uses those facial expressions in those ways. If your emoji's facial expression starts getting used in a different way, then just update your emojis. Like it's not, I mean, there's a thousand million on your keyboard. You can use whatever emoji you want. My, my eight-year-old son is actually really excited for emojis to become the dominant um, form of communication, written communication again, because he is really into ancient Egypt. So oh, it, so hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics, pictograms. It's coming back, baby. My, my daughter actually just very recently downloaded a app where you, she can design her own emojis that then she can like, as long as the app is loaded, it integrates with her keyboard so she can send custom emojis so she can like further define her, her words instead of using words in these carefully curated and crafted emojis. So if you like the show, send us a comment on our Facebook page or uh, send us an email. They have sort emojis. You can send us an emoji. Send us emojis. <laughs> we'll respond with another hopefully appropriate emoji. Uh, and I'm partial to the shield emoji when people sort emoji me. It's like a little. It's like a little duel. We can have emoji duel. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. Join our conversation with emojis or not. It doesn't matter. And uh, send us if you have an idea for an episode. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email. Write us a message on Facebook. And uh, yeah, or if you have an idea for somebody to, for a guest for us to have on, let us know. We we want to we want to put out a show that you folks want to listen to. So help us help you, Gary. Help us using words in ways that you understand. Yeah, I just now one one thing that is always easy to understand is the wonderful music of Paul Butler, who he allowed us to use some of it for our intro, and his website is linked in the description below where he can listen to more of the medieval music that he puts out.
All right. Well, all I have left to say is um, winky face, thumbs up, clap hands. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>